Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Thank you again, Courtney Nelson, for introducing me to our guest today, Byron Ling. Byron is a partner at Canaan. Canaan is an early-stage venture capital firm that invests in visionaries with transformative ideas. Byron invests in consumer companies that are reinventing the way we shop, entertain, and educate ourselves. Some of his investments include Roman, Papa, and Bravo Sierra. He was previously an investor at Primary Venture Partners, and prior to the venture world, was an early operator at Guild Group. It was great chatting with Byron about his diligence process and the effects COVID has had on the early stage investing ecosystem. So without further ado, here's Byron. so much for joining me today. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. What what attracted you to early stage startups and consumer specifically? Yeah, there's probably two things that were pretty formidable for me. Uh, the first was I, I was an early user of eBay and Napster, and I sort of fell in love with those products because of what they meant to consumers uh, through the internet. Um, and the second thing is when I was in uh, high school, I started an e-commerce business in the bike space and it really kind of opened my eyes towards the power of the internet. And for me, at least as someone running it, uh, the ability to connect with people around the world in this really cohesive and seamless way. And so as I kind of graduated college and began operating professionally, I was fortunate enough to join a company called Guilt Group, uh, which was kind of in uh, an early wave of e-commerce companies that uh, started in 2009. Um, and I think that experience sort of solidified this kind of unique magic energy that I think, uh, if you're lucky enough to see, emerges when a new product meets uh, a deeply unmet need in the market. So tell me a little bit about like after Guilt Group, like what what compelled you to head into venture capital? Yeah, at Guilt, I was responsible for overseeing part of consumer marketing, but later overseeing corporate development, which meant working closely with our investors and working on raising capital for the company. And so it was through those kind of two and a half years that I was exposed to this world of private investing. Um, and at the same time, in this period around 2010 and 2011, um, as the kind of app ecosystem for the iPhone began to mature a little bit, or at least sort of become larger, uh, I was much more curious about what else was going on in the consumer world uh, across internet products and services. Um, and so following my time at Guilt, I wanted to be able to take what I had learned from that company's hypergrowth, uh, while also simultaneously trying to be what an early stage inventor might look like. Um, and so to me, venture capital is kind of a great marriage of those two things. Tell me a little bit about Canaan and your due diligence process at the Seed in Series A. Sure. So Canaan's been around for about 33 years. Um, we're investing out of our 11th fund, which is an $800 million fund. What we mostly do is pretty early stage investing, which from a stage perspective typically looks like partnering with founders at the Seed or Series A or Series B stage. Um, and specifically on the consumer team at Canaan, I would say most of that focus is on seed and series A. And so a lot of what we're looking for are founders with relatively unique insights. Um, and maybe they've built a product, maybe they haven't, uh, but they have really strong clarity of thought around what might be missing in the world. 
uh, and how to build a product that might solve that. Um, you know, very often we're investing pre-product market fit and oftentimes we are investing when there's some metrics. But I think most important to us is the clarity of those insights and then the quality of the founding team. Um, we like to spend time with founders before there's a financing process since we think that's a bit more comfortable and it's a bit, you know, kind of outside the confines of a transaction. Um, and then in parallel, one of the things I really like to do is do really deep references on a founder. So I think you can learn a lot when you talk to people who have been a part of that founder's life over many years, uh, you know, from a professional perspective. And I think the combination of a really compelling insight in an attractive market with a great team tends to be the sort of elements of what get us excited uh, towards investing and partnering with. I wanted to. I wanted to also. I know I'm going a little bit off script here, but wanted to talk a little bit as well when you say attractive market. What you actually mean by uh, an attractive market uh, versus maybe like a mediocre market? Sure. Yeah, an attractive market can mean a lot of different things. It can mean uh, the market's growing really quickly. It can mean the market's at an inflection point in terms of demand. Uh, and therefore, if you create a product that is 10 times better than the incumbents, you may benefit from that growth within the market. Um, it could simply be there's, it's a tremendously profitable market, but it's highly underserved. Um, so I think things where, I think the markets that tend to be most attractive, um, to be honest, are often the most ignored. And the things that I've been excited by are markets where you can take technology and actually be inflationary in the market. So you can actually bring down prices because you're using software, whereas legacy products may not have that benefit. The markets that may be more mediocre, I would say, are possibly contracting markets or maybe markets that have uh, really, you know, just declining demand curves. Um, and so, there's a couple of different ways you can slice it, but I think the ones that get us most excited tend to also have less competition and more fragmentation. If you already have a true leader in a market and it's not fragmented, does that no longer make the market attractive? Sure. I, I think it does depend a bit on the market and then the point of view of what is the right approach to either disrupt or create value in the market. So, and I may want to kind of correct my statement on fragmentation. And to answer your question, there are some markets where there might, they might look monopolistic. Um, and you could probably use men's uh, grooming and razors as an example, Gillette, uh, which had substantial market share. And I think one of the theses in general with new brands has been monopolistic markets have created a lack of competition for products and new entrants, and therefore consumers have actually been worse off because the market leaders haven't had to invest in R&D over time. And I think that's a pretty valid thesis on a market. We've seen it play out in a lot of different ways um, in, within the kind of direct-to-consumer space. I think when I was saying fragmented, when you're looking at businesses where there's a lot of supply that needs to come online, uh, the value is uh, when it's fragmented, you don't you can create a solution that's not dependent on one large incumbent. Uh, and that tends to be a bit easier than trying to go after a set of supply where there's one or two players that drive most of the volume. So what are some of the verticals that you're paying attention to in consumer that you think there might be some opportunities? Yeah, I think generally, um, whether it's brands or kind of the, 
the growing intersection of consumer services and brands um, that are augmented by technology. So I think there's a lot of interesting businesses that are using some form of technology, whether it's telehealth or remote care, uh, to both distribute a service in a more affordable way um, and to also create a more scalable business. So, you know, for example, we're not an investor in it. There's a business called Curology that uses uh, telehealth technology to match consumers with a dermatologist or a registered nurse. And they integrate uh, their own products uh, that help reduce things like acne or other elements of skincare into that service. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of these things because uh, when you start to introduce this element of software, what you're doing is you're lowering the prices because you're making the providers more productive. Um, so a dermatologist can now see, call it 10 to 20 times more volume than they could previously. I just kind of made up those numbers, but that's kind of the overarching thesis. So we've seen this in another investment, one investment of ours called Uniform Teeth, where they, the team has reinvented their own version of orthodontic software technology. And as a result, the orthodontists they employ are about five times more productive than a traditional orthodontist. What are some qualities in a founder that, that you look for, or maybe some must-haves from founders in order for you to even consider investing? Since so much of what we do at the earliest stages really is uh, about our conviction on the team, I think one thing I really look for is almost obsessiveness. And it's a little bit hard to quantify what this looks like, but it's you know, someone who's constantly thinking about this, they're, you know, they're making this their life. Um, and it's kind of hard to understate that because in the last kind of couple of years, you know, becoming an entrepreneur has in some ways been a bit easier given the cost reduction of building a product and getting it online. Um, but obsessiveness to us is really important. And I think the other thing that's really critical is clarity of thought. So people who really understand the product that they're building and separately the problem they're solving very often we meet teams that have really you know are quite ambitious but maybe the clarity of their thinking or where they want to be uh, is a little bit off and the last thing i'd say uh, that i think is really important is a high degree of salesmanship um, and i think this is something that really for me is really important because a lot of what i try to understand with the team is how well they can recruit talent um, and i think it's Candidly, it's hard to get all three of these often at the same time, but when you do, uh, it's an amazing feeling. How do you think about a CEO's ability to recruit talent for his or her team? I think the thing that I often look for, because when we invest, the teams are pretty small, and it's unlikely that you've really seen them recruit talent um, before you've invested, is really kind of their approach to talent recruitment. So are they relentless about identifying talent? Are they constantly thinking about who they need to hire and when? Um, and then I think going a level deeper, um, which is how are they really convincing talented people to join? And all the small things that go into convincing that person, whether it's them, their spouse, their family, uh, because startups are risky. And so um, the CEOs and founders that have an asymmetric advantage on garnering talent, closing talent are always going to have an advantage against other companies and startups. So uh, to your question, I think what you're often looking for are people that are almost devout about the mission in the early stages. Um, part of that's because that's what often a startup is. It's sort of a group of people that are non-conforming. They're going against the grain. 
But the other thing is, if you're a startup, you have limited resources. So it's unlikely you're going to be able to get the best people in the world. Um, but if you can get people that are devoted to your mission um, and they're scrappy and they can solve problems, that's arguably what you want most because so much of what you're doing is trying to prove in the early stages that what, what you're building is really desirable by the world. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to also touch on how you think about early traction and traction in general. I had on uh, Jason Stouffer at Mav- Maveron who said, uh, I asked him what was so, you know so like some of the big uh, big learnings or or maybe changes in in how he invests from when he first started out as investor I think ten years ago to now, and he was saying how uh, when he first started investing he paid a lot more attention to early traction. Now it's not as much of a focal point uh, for him. I wanted to just hear your kind of thoughts in in terms of in those early days how you're thinking about early traction. Yeah, I think, um, again, we invest pretty early. So uh, we oftentimes, if we're leading a Series A, there's some degree of traction. I don't think traction is the most important thing, but what I, where I think it's really helpful is it's almost like a lens into the founder's decision-making abilities, um, how they brought, how they developed a product, how they brought it to market, how they iterated, how they collected feedback from users. And so I would say we try to invest more against the constants around uh, things like the market, things like the approach, things like uh, the quality and caliber of the founding team. And oftentimes there's some traction that might help substantiate our excitement about the team, but rarely are we going to get excited off feedback alone and then maybe be less excited by the team and still invest. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to also touch in two, since you invest at uh, the seed, Series A, and Series B stages, if signaling is real. Yeah, it's a great question and something a lot of founders should be really aware of. Um, The way we do seed investing, I would say, looks like us doing miniature Series A's. So we don't. We typically lead or co-lead a seed round. We typically want a board seat. And and my approach has always been upfront with entrepreneurs to kind of outline what would it look like for us to be excited about leading Series A. And it's really important, and we always try to be transparent that there's no guarantee, um, and potentially signaling is a risk. Um, we don't really do. We're not doing the volume of seed that I think some other funds were doing in the last couple of years. And I think what was often happening in the market was a lot of passive checks. Um, And most importantly, founders weren't getting the support that maybe they expected. And so I I think it's a real risk that any founder should be cognizant of. And I think we in general have just tried to essentially treat our seeds as mini A's. And again, while that doesn't mean we follow on on all of them, uh, I think we're pretty upfront about what are the things we would care about. And if they meet that, you know, it's a win-win because I think it's even easier for us as well. That makes sense in terms of your, your approach and how signaling might not be as big of a deal with, with Canaan. For first-time entrepreneurs, what's been their biggest hurdle or learning experience when they first set up their first board? It's a good question. And I think, it, you know, I don't think there are any rules around when a board needs to create it at what time and what structure. Um, I think we often see it now commonly done at the seed stage or more commonly and most often at the series A stage. 
So, uh, and oftentimes there's really one other board member other than the founders, I would say, from what we've seen, sometimes there's a seed investor board member. And the reality is that the company is still really early and it's still a pretty challenging period in some ways for the team. They might have picked up on some growth and had some early adoption, but they're pretty early in their journey. And so I think the things that are important are selection of those partners or investment partners at that stage and looking for things that you care about and that are important to your business. It's going to really vary by each founder based on their needs. But, you know, one thing that I always think about is empathy is really important for founders because a lot of what they're going through is really challenging and oftentimes it's, you know, one CEO. And so having a partner who's not just a, a formal board member, but who's almost a shock absorber to the CEO, I think is really valuable. And more importantly, they're not amplifying challenges in the business that can often create more stress on a founder. So I think that's really important um, when you're creating a board at that stage. I think the other thing that's really helpful is someone who can keep the founder and CEO accountable to focus and milestones. It's really easy to get distracted in the early stages and to be off course, but the reality is most companies have limited runway. They might have 18 to 24 months. And so if there's a way for an objective board member to help keep the team focused on what really matters, I think that's one of the most important things. Speaking about founders as well, I wanted to also talk about how you think about market expertise. I think there are certain markets like regulated markets, parts of healthcare and financial technologies, where that level of expertise is really important. And, and maybe it's okay if the founder and CEO doesn't have it, but their ability, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, to recruit either a co-founder or a substantial part of the management team, I think is really critical. And a lot of consumer broadly, though, I actually don't worry that much about it. Oftentimes, a lot of what we're looking for is a kind of product insight or source to some sort of customer insight that relates to a specific audience or population. And that can come from anywhere. That doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's worked on social products before. It really is about understanding something that's missing in the world. I wanted to also, I know, I, I, I know we've talked about product a bunch. I wanted to also talk about distribution. I had on Elizabeth Yin from a Hustle Fund who said that, you know, I, that she believes that 80%, that, that founders should focus 80% on distribution, 20% everywhere else. Wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe when, when you're reviewing a company, how much is like their, their go-to market strategy? How much does that weigh and, 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 and how the founder is thinking about distribution? Yeah, I think um, rather than try to assign a percentage weight, I, I think they're just both equally important, distribution and product. And I think um, one of the things that influences that is really the environment with which you're launching that business. So, you know, when I was at Gill, this is kind of the early days of Facebook becoming a true platform. And so there's many stories like Groupon, Living Social, all scaling on the backs of Facebook and Twitter, these very early platforms. And in that environment, to be honest, being good at distribution really wasn't that important because it was just there. Um, I, I think in general, though, a lot of founders do underweight distribution. Um, they often either think maybe the product will kind of attract attention itself or more often than not, I don't think they're as technical on around go-to-market and testing and iterating and making sure they have a go-to-market that evolves with the scale of the business. So 
I think it's really important. And I think oftentimes, and one of the things I've started to think about is how do you evaluate that go-to-market element within a founding team? Um, oftentimes, if it's before launch or even during launch. Um, but you can learn a lot just by talking through how someone launched a product and how they kind of collected feedback and how they thought about growing an adoption curve or funnel. Um, and I think you can definitely start to parse away who is really strong here versus who is. Thanks for explaining a bit more about your process. How can a founder de-risk product market fit? I think there's a couple ways. I mean, so often these teams are, you know, working, you know, they're just starting a business and they're trying to think about, you know, what do they want to build? I think one of the most important things is just listening to customers. Um, and as soon as you put a product out there, making sure you're listening to that feedback. The other thing I'd say, you know, for companies in this stage, whether they've raised some seed funding or not, is doing your best to recruit the best team possible around you. Um, there, it's hard to underestimate just keeping the average high for every team member you have in the early stages. And I think oftentimes that comes in the form of the best co-founders you can get or the best early team members, but having the right team in place, I think improves your chances of breaking through. All coming back to the team, wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the differences between opportunistic and thematic uh, investors and where do you sit on the spectrum? Yeah, most of what we do uh, is pretty early stage. And so I'd say it's hard for us to really come prepared with a blueprint of the future. And more often than not, we are surprised by a founder's vision and insight. And so I think most of what we do is opportunistic. I think over time, and I think we've done some versions of this, you may find there are patterns around a certain market or something that's missing in the consumer sphere. And those data points may get you to look more at the landscape of solutions today or businesses being built. Um, and that can oftentimes lead to an investment. But because of what we're doing is so early and so much of the end goal is years away, I don't think we try to be prescriptive and certainly not fortune tellers around what the future might hold. Um, and I think that varies by stage of fund. Right. It's listening and allowing an entrepreneur to present what the future could hold and what they're seeing. I wanted to also switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, what's I, th I think a top of mind for for everybody, uh, coronavirus. I wanted to ask you about how it's affected uh, your activities and, you know, consumer investing uh, in general. So first of all, like, are you shifting strategy away or towards any any companies or verticals specifically? Like most investors, we're sort of embracing the uncertainty, um, but we're also optimistic around any emergent behavior that might come from the crisis right now. That said, when we invest, we tend to take a pretty long-term view, meaning we expect their story to unfold over many years. And we really want to back the teams that can manage through both the ups and the downs, you know, what the world's going through right now being a down. So I actually would say it hasn't really shifted uh, our strategy in, at, at this moment. I think it's very possible in the next couple of months, as the world has better information, it, it might, we might come to the conclusion there are certain categories that we don't want to invest that are less attractive. Um, but again, and when you take a longer term view, if you believe the world will recover from this crisis, 
then it's hard to rule things out um, unless you're really just operating on the short term. Are you pausing any investments in a particular space currently? I think we've probably, we've generally have not done as much in the direct consumer space historically. And it's likely that we're probably not doing a ton there right now. But I would say, we, we again, we don't really try to be prescriptive about specific spaces. I think we're always kind of open-minded and willing to be surprised by any founder uh, that's got a unique insight. So I, I think it's possible that there are certain categories that either become overfunded or markets that become overfunded. And we may make a decision to say, for XYZ reason, it will be hard for a new entrant to compete or operate here. Um, but I don't think we actually prescriptively say we shouldn't do investments in this category or at a certain time. Got it. That's that's helpful. How are you looking at the overall investing landscape? I mean, I know you know on Twitter there's a bunch of uh, investors that say you know uh, we're open for business. This is nothing's uh, really changed. But just kind of wanted to hear. Just I think I think entrepreneurs are going to have a, a a harder time raising. Uh, is my perception, but just wanted to hear generally um, how you're looking at deals. Are you right now focusing more towards your portfolio companies? Yeah, I think uh, like most funds, you know, the first couple of weeks of the crisis, you spend understanding the portfolio, the needs, making sure, you know, you have a good handle on the entire portfolio and any challenges. Um, but I would say we're still taking meetings and we're, you know, I think we've actually just uh, brought in, we've brought in companies that we've never met in person and we've just done a lot of Zoom meetings with them. Um, and I think we're actually about to do our first deal in that way. So we're open for business in that sense. But I think what your question is, how are investors and entrepreneurs managing through a period of a lot of uncertainty? And I think there's kind of two buckets. There are the companies that have already raised money. Um, and so, for example, there's a lot of seed companies that raised money in the last couple, last two years. And we're expecting to go raise Series A's this year. And that's going to create some challenges because um, a lot of investors may not do investments without meeting people. Um, and so I think you've actually got some overhang in terms of amount of money invested. And a lot of those companies will have to figure out how to raise capital, you know, will there be existential questions. And a lot of that will have to be sorted out in the next 12 to 18 months. And then the other bucket, I think, is people that are raising money for the first time. And I actually don't worry as much about this category of entrepreneurs. I think there's actually been a large amount of institutional growth in pre-seed and seed investing in the last two years. And I think many of those funds are more comfortable or have already been investing without meeting teams in person. So while there may be kind of an initial slowdown, I don't worry as much about um, that opportunity set uh, being available. Wow, it's a it's a really interesting way to look at it. So you're more you're more concerned with in in some ways the actual the the companies that are looking that are looking to raise their Series A as opposed to the companies that are looking for a seed or or their first institutional round. Yeah, I think it's really just a function of. Uh, there's a large disruption in, you know, in just day-to-day -day behavior around meeting people, but you also have, you know, a much higher risk environment. And so the thing past the seed stage is you're starting to ask for funds to commit larger investment checks. And when the risk tolerance 
um, or sorry, when the risk profile goes up dramatically, as there's a lot more uncertainty, the bar is much higher. And so it's likely many of those won't be able to raise. Uh, many of them are probably hoping to not have to raise this year if they can. Uh, and they're trying likely to find other sources of capital, likely from their existing investors. Now, for your in your portfolio companies, how are you thinking about profitability and growth? Yeah, I think there's probably everyone has maybe a subset of cost of companies that are actually benefiting from the crisis. But for the most part, most companies are probably not growing and they're shifting away from offensive to defensive mode, which means they're cutting their marketing and growth budgets. They're cutting the tools and services that support them. They're very likely doing, um, you know, reduction in workforces around those types of employees. And they're really operating in an environment of uncertainty. So what they're trying to do is extend their runway. Um, if you extend your runway, then you have a fighting chance to come out on the other side of this and potentially even stronger. So I, I don't really know if it's necessarily a shift to profitability because I would be surprised if many companies can actually become profitable in the next 12 months. But if you're able to extend your runway and perhaps enter 2021 with a reasonably strong balance sheet, then what you've done is you've given the company a much better chance of surviving. So I would say it's mostly just a function of people being prudent, extending runway, and trying to set the company up for potentially um, you know, an uncertain year. That makes sense with how companies are changing how they're spending. Wanted to also just talk especially in this environment, like what, what macro consumer trends are you, are you focused on? And has this, has COVID like changed any, um, any of these, your focuses or maybe thesis you, you previously had? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple like learning curves in the consumer space that I think as people of all ages have had to become more comfortable with teleconferencing or group video chats um, it's interesting to think about what that learning curve does, you know, in a world where maybe we don't need to necessarily be in our homes. So, you know, for example, we have a business called investment in a company called Papa, which does remote care, and they've quickly been able to shift to virtual care with older adults. And, you know, one of the interesting behavior trends there is an older adult who historically may have had a harder time setting up Zoom or Google Hangouts has had to, in some ways, force, be forced to learn that behavior uh, and to also realize maybe the benefits. So I, I think that's one of the kind of interesting behaviors that we're seeing. And what that does is it might unlock other businesses or products in the next couple of years. Um, I think the thing, though, that I've observed is within the kind of consumer space, specifically on the kind of commerce and transactional side, is in some ways, I think this crisis of people staying at home is simply accelerating the trends that were already happening. So the secular shift of e-commerce, the continuing decline, if not rapid decline, of malls and uh, department stores and traditional retail. And so in some ways, I don't really know that that's super dramatic. Um, and in some ways, it might actually be quite efficient because you're just improving the livelihood, efficiency, and savings uh even further almost like the acceleration of a trend in terms of uh, e-commerce 
as um, as a percentage of of the whole retail. I also liked your first point about the acceleration of virtual interaction and the reliance now on those tools. What's what's one thing that you would change about venture capital? It's a good question. I I think it would be really nice to see even more diversity of thought and risk taking. And in some ways, people who are making conviction led investments. Um, I think it's easy. It's an industry that is very easy to follow a herd mentality. And I wish there was a bit more appetite for people to be wrong and to take bigger risks. Yeah, that's that's certainly a point that other investors on the show brought up, kind of less groupthink, and that VC should actually also be taking more risk. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I think one book that I've enjoyed personally, written by Barack Obama when he was a senator, and I think it's called uh, The Audacity of Hope. And it's just an amazingly well-written story and i think in, i think what i'm most drawn and inspired by it really is just the the complexity and simplicity of his writing from a professional perspective there's actually a book called who called who the a method for hiring and i think it's a really valuable book for really anyone to read because it's a really thoughtful approach on how to evaluate talent how to carry talent through a competitive process how to close talent and there's a lot of books in this category in general, but I found this one to be the most thoughtful and most practical. Both very interesting and certainly books I need to check out. Uh, no one yet on this show has mentioned these two uh, two books. Um, so my final question to everyone is, what's one piece of advice for founders of consumer startups? I think we talked about this earlier, but distribution really does matter just as much as product. And... I find myself sometimes surprised at, you know, when we're inspired by a product often, you know, where we wish there was more thought around distribution. Um, and this is something that can be learned, uh, but it's also something you don't have the luxury of time to solve for either. Uh, so my, my kind of one piece of advice would be making sure founders are thinking equally about those. Yeah, I think that I agree with you. I think that distribution can be, at least with my conversations from past investors, it seems like distribution is certainly something that could be overlooked. Byron, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Byron on, and I really appreciate him taking the time. You can follow Byron on both Twitter and Medium at ByronLing1. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you are a founder working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you could DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. And for all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.